You're listening to episode 137 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it's Thursday, 11th of March, 2021, here in Norwich as we're recording. And it's extremely windy here in Norwich. So if you can hear blustering in the background, that's what it is. It is blustery, actually, isn't it? I've just taken off my... It's because I've got noise-cancelling headphones on, but it's blowing a gale. So what have we got on the show today, Steph? So today is my interview with Sonia Falero, which took place a few weeks ago, um, just after her new book, The Good Girls and Ordinary Killing, was published by Bloomsbury in the UK. So that was late January. I had a fantastic conversation with her about how she pulled uh, this book together. Yeah, it's a fantastic wide-ranging conversation, which we will talk about a bit more in a moment. But mm. first, a few bits of housekeeping. So the Dragon Hall Debates series continues, and we have an event coming up in a couple of weeks all about adolescence. Yes. So Dragon Hall Debates was named uh, because it used to take place in Dragon Hall, of course. And it's a, a partnership between us and the University of East Anglia. And what we do for these regular monthly events is that we tackle a range of topics. So it could be scientific, cultural, political, and we use the expertise of many of the UEA academics, as well as some really fantastic guest thinkers and writers and commentators. So the usual format for these events is that we will choose a topic. Our speakers will have an opportunity to draw on their perspective and their expertise around that topic. And then we also open up the conversation to the audience to have a chat and to pose some questions and to feedback their own points of view. So at the moment, these events are running online and our event for March on the Tuesday, the 23rd of March is all about adolescence. We've got UEA's Dr. Harry Dyer, who will be looking at the ways in which young people struggle with social media and the way that social media can impact on their identity. We've got David Bainbridge from the University of Cambridge, who will be talking about the science of our teenage years. And we've also got Taryn Everdeen, who is a very close friend of the National Centre for Writing. She's a, a youth activist. She's taken part in many of our young people's programmes. And she's going to be sharing her experiences from the front line being a youth activist. So this event's taking place completely online. You can register for free in advance and we'll send a streaming link straight to your inbox and you can join the conversation at seven o'clock on Tuesday the 23rd of March. It's worth mentioning that this conversation is suitable for ages 16 and over. So yes, it is, it's a conversation about adolescence, but not for younger listeners. Yeah, and we're still calling them Dragon Hall Debates because that's a promise that one day we will be back. <laughs> we'll be back debating in the beautiful setting of Dragon Hall once more. We also have mentoring going on at the moment as well. So if you're looking for a bit of assistance and feedback and insight into your writing practice or trying to work through some thorny questions, then our mentors are there to help. And you can find out all about that on the website. We'll put links to all these things down in the show notes, but there are some mentoring slots still available and coming up soon. Yes, they do. They do fill up very quickly, these sessions. Um, they're very popular and you can also book some blocks of sessions together. So book three blocks altogether and you receive a 10% discount on the price, which means you get you get more of an opportunity to get one-to-one -one feedback on your work and to get advice from a really experienced writing coach who knows all about the, you know, the very common troubleshooting questions around productivity and motivation and balancing your work and home life as well as those very practical, nitty-gritty writing skills. Yeah, we actually have a podcast episode with one of our mentors, Katri Scala, so we'll make sure we put a link down to that previous podcast episode down in the notes as well, because that's a really good introduction to 
kind of the value of mentoring and what you can get out of it as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of our um, mentors that we work with have received mentoring in the past themselves. So they know that it's, you know, one of the most valuable experiences that they've had in their writing careers. And that's often why they get on board and start offering mentoring themselves. And finally, and excitingly, we have a new range of creative writing online courses now available and ready to book. These are our premium courses which run for three or six months with expert tutors. We co-produce them with the University of East Anglia and they're a really fantastic way to stay focused on your writing, improve your skill set and by the end of the course you will have progressed in, in whatever your writing journey happens to be. So we have a full complement of courses this time round. We have Start Writing Creative Nonfiction. We have Start Writing Fiction, Start Writing Poetry. We have the very popular Start Writing Crime Fiction course, as well as an advanced Level 2 Fiction course for people who are maybe a bit further along in their writing. And also an introduction to script writing. So these courses are all available at the moment. They do tend to fill up quite quickly, but you can find out full details over on the website. And one very important thing is that these courses start on Tuesday, the 4th of May. But if you book your place uh, nice and early before the 22nd of March, you can also take advantage of our early bird rate, which knocks 10% off the full price. Yeah. So if you're interested, do get in there quickly. These courses all run completely online, so you can do it from home. You just need a computer with access to the internet. Okay. So enough plugging of our amazing events. Let's talk about Sonia Falero and your chat with her about the book, The Good Girls. Yes. So I really, really enjoyed this chat with Sonia. Um, Sonia is the author of Beautiful Thing Inside the Secret World of Bombay's Dance Bars, which was named a book of the year by The Guardian, Observer, Sunday Times, Economist, NPR and Time Out. So she's, yeah, she's very, very highly regarded. Um, and she's also written a novella called The Girl. Her writing has received support from the Pulitzer Center and the Investigative Fund and peers in the New York Times, the Financial Times, Harper's, Granter, the California Sunday Magazine and MIT Technology Review. And her newest book, which came out in January, is called The Good Girls at Ordinary Killing, which was published in the UK by Bloomsbury. And so far, The Good Girls has received some really, really fantastic, glowing coverage uh, in the Sunday Times and the TLS Spectator, Financial Times. Uh, New York Times and Washington Post. That's a pretty good list of accolades. It's pretty good, isn't it? And um, I really I can't recommend this book enough. Really, it's 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 a shocking read. It is you know a difficult read at times, but it's very very important, and it's just so fantastically researched and put together. So I had a great time talking to Sonia about how she became a, a nonfiction writer. Her sort of her early career in journalism and how that changed gradually into spending a lot more time writing these nonfiction books about very important topics, um, particularly around sort of societal and cultural concerns in India. I spoke to her about how she researched this book. She drew on many face-to-face -face interviews and there was a huge amount of information and a huge cast of characters to work with. So she had a lot of information that she had to sort of sift and filter through. And there was also quite a big, a big battle balance between fact and fiction in this book. So some of the information she received from um, eyewitnesses wasn't always as factually correct as it could have been. So she really had to play the investigative journalist here when she was pulling this story together. Yeah, editing this interview together was a real joy. I mean, Sonia 
this has so many amazing tips for anyone who's looking to write some kind of creative nonfiction about, you know, how to do the research, how to translate that into some kind of compelling narrative. And also your discussion with her about how she got into this part of her writing career and how she spent a while in journalism writing material that she wasn't really that interested in and kind of how she managed to segue from that into the the themes and the topics that that really do drive her it's a really brilliant conversation i could listen to her speaking all day so um yeah we'll move on to me talking to sonia a few weeks back sonia it's so lovely to speak to you welcome to the writing life podcast how are you doing today i'm good thank you very much thank you for having me we're really excited to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time on a Monday to discuss your writing journey and your new book, The Good Girls, with me. I finished the book a couple of weeks ago and it's it's really stuck with me, actually. I think I've thought about it every day since and I absolutely breezed through it. It's a real, it, it's funny calling it a page turner, but it does feel that way. Before we dive into the book and how you went about writing it, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do in case some of our listeners are new to your work? Yeah, of course. So I was uh, born in India. I was born in uh, a small state called Goa to a um, family that loved books. My parents uh, weren't authors. My father was, in fact, a lawyer. My mother was a professor. But they did uh, surround themselves with books and uh, later on in their lives uh, ended up uh, writing them as well, but uh, it was one of many things that they did. Uh, When I was a little older, my father's work took him to Delhi, which is where I grew up. And uh, that's where I continued this journey of, um, I taught myself to read and write at quite a young age um, before I went to formal school, simply because I was fascinated by all the books that we had lying around. And I wanted to I wanted to immerse myself in those worlds. And those of us who grew up in India in the 80s, we we read a lot of books by British authors and by American authors. And, uh, you know, we didn't have systems in place the way we do now. Now you can swing a cat and... Uh, hit a bookshop, a swing a cat and hit a, hit a writer, in fact. But in those days, you, you didn't have so many bookshops. And what the bookshops had was just a funky mix of things, you know. And so you could read anything. I mean, one day you'd be reading, uh, I don't know, Love Story. And the next day you'd be reading Rebecca. Uh, you never knew what you would get at the bookshop. And so um, my generation grew up reading a diverse range of books, but not necessarily reading books by Indian authors, because then, unlike now, we didn't have a lot of uh, books that were published uh, in English by Indian authors. And English was uh, was my first language. It was the first language of, of um, well, actually, no, it wasn't my parents' first language. It was um, maybe their third. Uh, but uh, that's what I read. I read in English. And uh, I couldn't at the time read in the other Indian languages. Translations were a thing that happened much later. And Indian writing was something that entered my life much, much later and had a, you know, uh, had, had a profound impact. But uh, 
who I am as a writer today was not shaped by the books that I read when I was young, so much as the experiences that I had as a reporter in my 20s, reporting in Bombay, working uh, closely uh, as a journalist uh, in marginalized communities, and seeing the impact of poverty, but also modernity on these communities. That's what shaped me and that's what made me who I am. I was going to ask actually whether your your journalism career came first because I know you started writing, a, you wrote a novel, The Girl, in graduate school. But So journalism as a career came first before you started writing books? Yeah, so, you know, I always knew I was going to be uh, a writer. Mm. I... I remember testing the waters with my mother at a young age uh, because I didn't know if that was something that she would want me to do. Mm. I don't know why I doubted her, but uh, I did say to her, you know, when I want to grow, when I grow up, I want to be a writer. And my mother said, that sounds great. I think you'd be great. And uh, I mean, to be fair, my mother said the same thing when I changed my mind shortly <laughs> afterwards and, you know, said I wanted to be a doctor. And then, of course, there was uh, the mandatory, I want to be an actress in Bollywood. Mm. But uh, she thought they were all great ideas. She was just that kind of uh, lady. But uh, because I knew that was my career and it had been established, mm. I, I, I became a journalist as a way to gain writing experience mm. and my I started working with you know various news weeklies in 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 India and uh, I was assigned the books desk mm. which was rather boring then <laughs> because it really was just you know receiving books commissioning reviews waiting for the reviews to come in editing doing some very light editing mm. uh, I, I felt like I just spent those years waiting to write my first book. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, it all got a bit too tedious. And I took a break from journalism. I was still 23, 24, perhaps. I um, came to Edinburgh to study, uh, to do a master's. And while I was in Edinburgh, I started writing my first novel, um, which, as you mentioned, is called The Girl and which was published by Penguin in, in India um, sometime after that. And uh, I just always thought I would be a novelist, you know, because I mm-hmm. didn't read nonfiction. I didn't have access to nonfiction in India. Um, narrative nonfiction, which is what I focus on now, and which is what The Good Girls really is, is, mm-hmm. is a very American thing that I... Mm-hmm encountered in my late 20s after I'd published my first book. And uh, even then, you know, I was very careful not to follow the American model, which is very um, cookie cutter, very formulaic, Mm. very Mm. gripping, but it is certainly formulaic. And I wanted to I wanted to take the basic tenets of a narrative nonfiction and make it mine and adapt it to the kind of storytelling that I was I was keen on. So you were drawing from your your experience as a journalist and some of those skills, but also where else were you drawing from then? You know, Stephanie, that was primarily it. So after I wrote The Girl, I 
I looked at it and I was like, wow, I'm not a novelist. What am I thinking? <laughs> and, you know, I was so glad I realized that. I mean, imagine, you know, attempting to put out a few more books and mm. and then that, that not knowing that that was not what I was meant to do. Uh, but I figured it out. And uh, around this time, I was, uh, so I'd come back from Edinburgh, you know, so mm. I did the journey at this point was Delhi, Edinburgh, I came back from Edinburgh, published The Girl, moved to Bombay to continue my career as a journalist. And Bombay, for those of your listeners who, who aren't too familiar, is, is just the most fascinating city, you know. And in, it's, it's sort of, I know people use vibrant um, to death, and, <laughs> but Bombay is so vibrant. It thrums with activity. And it is just the most interesting place. And I, I continue to feel that despite having lived there for so many years, my enthusiasm for Bombay has never dulled. So as a journalist in Bombay, the other thing that was so, so career making for me, Stephanie, was the fact that, you know, it, it was, it had a certain reputation for safety mm. relative to the rest of India, you know, and um, I, it was a city where I felt that I could travel day or night in public transport without being afraid. And uh, that that is the most empowering thing. And I had never encountered that feeling before. Mm. You know, I had lived in Delhi growing up and always been afraid and being afraid it just cripples you you know mm -hmm. because you are constantly making calculations what am I going to wear oh, yeah. yeah where am I going to go <laughs> who am I going to go with when am I coming back do I know how I can get back and if you're a journalist having to make those constant calculations oh how your life just shrinks you know, how, how the world suddenly becomes such a tiny place. But in Bombay, the world was, it, it, it was just so, so different. And that's when I started writing about various, uh, various communities uh, that kind of seem to exist on the margins of the city. And the city mm -hmm. is, you know, known as a business capital, as the fashion capital, the capital of Bollywood, super modern, super cosmopolitan relative to the rest of India. And it seemed, and, and, and while this is all true, the communities that were set to live on the margins were were to me the most interesting. So, you know, the, the hijra community, the transgender community, for example, the community of bar dancers who were these incredible women who had fled their often terrible lives in, in tiny rural Indian villages and come to seek freedom in, in Bombay, the city of dreams. And in Bombay, because they couldn't read or write and they didn't have many skills, they ended up dancing in, in something called a dance bar. Mm. You know, uh, a lot of people explain it as, as the Indian strip club, but of course there's absolutely no stripping. In fact, the, the women are dressed very modestly in, in mm. beautiful beautiful saris or lenga jolis and they dance to music and and men show their appreciation by throwing money uh which is perhaps where the the strip club analogy comes in sure 
But these women were extraordinary, you know, and, and they, they thrived in Bombay. They were said to live in the margins, like the hijras or like the sex workers, uh, but they were such an important part of what made the city so interesting. They had a they had a, a twist on, on on Hindi that they spoke. They had uh, an incredibly progressive attitude towards relationships. They made uh, very good money for women their age, and they were able to use that money to support themselves and also to support their families back home, often by educating uh, a, a generation of children that would otherwise not be educated. So in Bombay, because I could travel freely and I could go where I wanted when I wanted, I was suddenly seeing things that I, had I been in Delhi, and, and I'm sure Delhi has so many fascinating subcultures, uh, I would not have had access to because you know, I couldn't move freely. Yeah, but here I could. Hmm. Yeah, Hmm. I could. And that is when I, I started to see the world in a completely different way. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a middle-class Indian. Uh, To me, I'm not interesting. I have, uh, I don't particularly find people like me interesting, but here were people who I was just in thrall of because, you know, India is, is is one of those countries where it is very, very hard to break through. You know, if you don't, if you're not born into opportunity, if you're not born into the right class, if you're not born into the right caste, my gosh, life is so, so hard. I mean, just imagine a, you're born into a caste that says, well, you're going to skin animals. That is your job, you are not doing anything else. Mm. I mean, imagine growing up with that. Mm. And uh, that is the life for people. Many people are born into castes uh, that, that define their work and they cannot, cannot escape it. And in Bombay, I, I saw people who, despite being, being almost tied down by their destiny, broke free and remade themselves and imagined uh, and worked for a future that would have been unimaginable for their parents. And so these were the people who I wrote about in my first book of nonfiction and my second book uh, overall. The second book was, of course, um, Beautiful Thing Inside the Secret World of Bombay's Dance Bars, which was based on five years of just hanging around these dance bars and, uh, and and spending time with some incredible women, the most powerful and yet the most vulnerable women that I think I have ever met in my life. Mm. And when you were, you were meeting these women and hanging around these dance bars, was this in your, I say in your free time, was this as well as uh, working and writing journalism? Were you kind of having to balance the two? Yeah, I did work... I did work simultaneously on the book and mm-hmm. as a reporter. But, you know, one of the things that I did was to sort of break free of that little 
that little box that I had put myself in, yeah, yeah. Uh, which was to write about books and authors only. And it was hard, I have to say, you know, breaking out of that because by then I had, I was known as somebody who did only certain kinds of things. So there was certainly a process that um, perhaps your listeners may, may, may also be familiar with where you while you're trying to reinvent yourself you are also having to convince the people around you or the people you're answerable to that you have the right it is your right to change your mind it is your right to say hey you know what I'm going to try new things because I'm not 100% sure that this is how I want to spend my life So my 20s, which started out with me saying, I'm going to write books, I'm going to um, write about books, and I'm going to write novels, changed because of the freedom I experienced in Bombay into me saying, hey, I I want to explore the world around me, and I want to Mm -hmm. engage with it, and I want to use my voice, Mm -hmm. and that means I'm going to have to change what I write about. That means I'm going to become a full-time field reporter. And I don't know what I'm going to find Mm -hmm. because I'm still figuring things out, but I need the time and space. And I'm definitely writing nonfiction from now on. And I think, you know, at the time, there wasn't very much writing of the sort that, eventually became beautiful thing, mm. either in reportage form, and it certainly wasn't present in in nonfiction. Nonfiction was still at the time, we're talking about 10 years ago, uh, very much an emerging form in India. Mm. And uh, so I I think it was that the output was exciting, became exciting eventually for the people around me. So for my editors and and then eventually publishers, uh, as well. Did you find initially that you had to pitch what you were writing as in kind of justify, you say it's like a new, you know, a new type of sort of narrative nonfiction. Did you have to kind of pitch and did you feel like you had to prove why this type of writing was worthwhile or kind of prove why you've chosen to to change from a certain type of writing to another? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, this is such an excellent question and it's, I don't think that people who are outside of journalism might mm. might have this experience, but I feel like all journalists will will mm. know what I'm talking about when 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 I say absolutely. Because you know, I the first time I wanted to switch from writing about books and also, you know, these I mean, I've suddenly found myself writing about art and theater, which honestly in my twenties, what did I know? You know, but that was like the slop that I'd found myself in. And also, you know, English language, newspapers and magazines, you know, class plays such a big role. People don't speak about this, but class is how you are, you know, it's how people look at you. They look at you through the lens of class. That's how they place you. That's where, you know, that's where they they get to decide what you should be doing. And I was the books, theater and art person. I mean, the the supremely ignorant theater and arts person. But there I was. And I remember the first time I wanted to switch um, was because at the time, uh, there there was a, a 
terrible thing that was happening in the rural countryside of uh, Maharashtra, which is where Bombay is located. Mm. What was happening was that there were a, a large number of farmers who were dying by suicide. And this was a story that was certainly in the headlines. Uh, And I understood the broad contours of the story, which is that, um, you know, farmers for for, uh, various reasons were had taken on large debt. They were unable to repay that debt and they didn't feel that there was any possibility of it even happening and feeling absolutely overwhelmed by what that would mean they they took their own lives and uh, of course you know the debt doesn't go away the debt must still be paid and that means that the women who are left behind mm-hmm. and the children uh, inherit while while suffering a tremendous loss and in, in the process of grieving also inherit this this terrible burden now i knew what was happening but at the time i, I I remember thinking, this is not resonating the way it should. Yeah. And I remember wondering why that's that's not, that wasn't happening. And it wasn't because, you know, I lived in Bombay and I was a writer and spoke English and, and the, the, the victims of these terrible tragedies were farmers in, in faraway villages uh, who spoke a completely different language. It wasn't that. It was something about how we in the media were telling these stories. Those mm-hmm. stories didn't stick. And I wanted to actually figure out why. Uh, and I remember approaching an editor and saying, hey, look, I'm in Bombay. This is happening in Vidarbha, which is the district in, in Maharashtra. I think just a, a few hours uh, away by train and I said can I go and and, and just do a, a little bit of reporting and he said no you're the books person you, <laughs> yeah. you work on the books mm-hmm. you know we have somebody we have a rural reporter and try as I might I couldn't get him to budge and I remember mm-hmm. thinking this is the most extraordinary thing you know I mean I'm just a kid. I was in my early 20s, right? So I'm like, I'm just a kid. Why, why can't I get to, to change my mind? Why am I the books person? Already, you know? yeah, such an early Already. Age. I mean, like, why? <laughs> yeah, this is me for life. I mean, why am I shackled to, you know, to the new releases shelf? Mm. So uh, there's nothing I can do because, you know, at that age, for a lot of us, your boss, once the boss draws the line, there's you. what do you do? But as my luck would have it, he really was truly awful and, and, and was subsequently fired. So, you know, great rejoicing on my part. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to sound terrible, but he did deserve it. Well, and off he went. Yeah, that's for sure. Off he went and, you know, pretending as though I had never pitched the story to anybody. I just took my pitch and presented it to the editor who who assumed that particular gentleman's position. Mm -hmm. And and this editor was wonderful. He said, yeah, definitely go for it. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I took the train. I went to that district where these farmers uh, were taking their own lives and you know, spend some time there with their wives and kids. And I think that was when I realized 
that was it. That was it for me. Mm. You know, that is what I wanted to do. And uh, that story I wrote eventually became uh, a cover story. And once that happened, it was, I, it was there was no looking back. You know, I, mm. I was continued to educate myself. And I continued to report and to pitch stories that mattered to me. And I found that the more I did these stories, the more people engaged mm. with, with, with those particular kind of stories. And then I was left alone. And I think that engagement, it just came from showing similarity rather than difference. You know, sure. I mean, look, we all know what the difference is, hmm. but what is the similarity between, you know, quote unquote us and quote unquote them? Hmm. There are plenty of similarities. Hmm. And uh, if you write in a way that makes people connect, that then the story sticks, then the story becomes memorable, then the story is not the story of them. It is the story of us. And yeah. that is what I believe was missing in the stories of, of, of that particular, what went on to be called an epidemic of suicide. And I think it's often also what is missing in, in stories of communities that, that we feel are not similar communities that we feel are, are so different that the, the 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 gap is unbridgeable i don't think there are such communities actually mm. i think it's all about how you look at people and how you write people mm. and uh, i think that's that's a lesson that i learned um, and and thought about kept in mind moving forward some fantastic advice in there and I wanted to ask you about the good girls in particular because as you say narrative non-fiction seems like a great place to kind of spend more time looking at those similarities that you mentioned and spend more time world building and um, I guess really going into a huge amount of detail about these stories and um, really getting getting people on board and really engrossed in these stories in a way that maybe sort of shorter form journalism you know you haven't got as much time to do that. But with The Good Girls, this has just come out um, in the UK with Bloomsbury. And this story focuses on the shocking deaths of two teenage girls, Padma and Lali, in a small village in northern India. And you use their story as a kind of, I guess, a springboard for a much larger conversation about sexual assault and violence against women in India. How did this, this story in particular come about? How did you arrive at the story of Padma and Lali? So... I saw a picture of the children on Twitter. Uh, Padma and Lali are not their real names. Uh, I, I can't use their real names because uh, of a prohibition in Indian law. But on the morning that the children were found uh, hanging in a tree in a mango orchard in their village, a local reporter took a photograph and uploaded it on Facebook. And on face from Facebook, it migrated to Twitter. And, you know, at the time, a lot of people, um, and in including myself, were still uh, 
distraught over the events of December 2012. Mm. In December 2012, um, as as you may perhaps recall, a young uh, physiotherapy student who was on her way back from watching a film with a friend uh, got into a, a, a bus that she thought was a public bus, but was in fact not. And the men inside uh, grabbed hold of her. They raped her. They tortured her. And then they flung her out of the bus. Uh, she barely survived. And in fact, a few days later, she died. And what followed afterwards was the biggest protests against sexual violence that India has ever witnessed. Mm. And the the that particular event resonated so strongly with me and with so many other people uh, because we by the time that this young woman had died we had we we knew her like like we might have known a a, a friend yeah and we knew so much about her you know she was uh, she was a young woman from a poor farming family in Uttar Pradesh whose parents very early on gauged her talent and her intelligence and worked incredibly hard, double shifts, triple shifts, to make sure that she went to school and studied beyond what any member of their family in any generation had ever studied. She was the greatest, highest achiever of that family. And Mm -hmm. Her parents supported her. It's it's very very rare in for, in the circumstances that that girl emerged from that parents and family bolster a young woman the way that they did. Sure. And you know she was supposed to be the face of modern India. She mm. was supposed to be what every one of us aspired to be. I mean, you know, in a country like India, you are told you are to be a doctor a lawyer or an engineer there is nothing else and this girl had become a doctor was about to 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 practice and this is what happened to her in the capital city uh at a time when there was plenty of traffic plenty of people in the streets and it was a you know her her, her rape her torture her death was a klaxon that we had been silent uh for too long and all any woman really, who, who's grown up in India. And, and I'm uh, certain that this is not an India problem, mm. but we are speaking specifically of India. And it, we, we grew up afraid. We grew up believing that it was going to happen, that something terrible was going to happen to us. And when this young woman was raped, we looked at her and said, that could have been us. And so by the time the uh, barely two years had passed, when the picture of Padma and Lali started circulating on Twitter, and you know, everybody who saw that picture said, my gosh, nothing is changing. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so much had been done and so much change had actually happened. So for example, there, those massive protests that, that, seemed to fill every corner of India, forced the government to make very strong changes to the law. Mm. 
uh, force the government to make an enormous investment in, you know, in in, in centers for victims of uh, of sexual violence, in mm. changing how doctors speak to victims of sexual violence, in 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 educating people, and and perhaps even more important than this, you know, the subject of sexual violence, which was so taboo in India that you could not have spoken about it under any circumstances was dinner table fare everywhere. Mm. I mean, I've traveled to villages in India that people would call remote and I and, and people there know of the 2012 incident. Yeah. And, you know, so change had happened and yet it wasn't sufficient. So the picture of Padma and Lali teenagers, one sixteen, mm. one fourteen, dangling from a tree that everybody said had, had been raped and killed uh, by upper caste men in a show of strength and power, felt to me like it had to be written about. Mm. But I had already thought about you know, writing a big book about sexual violence in India. Yeah. And so I thought this particular case would be the centerpiece, but not the book itself. Mm. By then I was living in London and uh, I, I couldn't go to India right away, but I did go the next year around the time of the first anniversary of the children's deaths. Sure. So I flew down to Delhi. Then I took a car. I drove six hours to Uttar Pradesh, found myself the least seedy hotel, which is really <laughs> quite a feat, I have to say. And from my least seedy hotel, I drove another two hours to this village. Mm. It's it was just, you know, it's 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 a lovely village. It's a, it's small. It's green. It's got, it's it's got, you know, a little. It's it's by the Ganga River. Mm-hmm. It looks in many ways, certainly at first glance, picture perfect. And my plan, uh, Stephanie, was just to spend about a week and to wrap up this story because, you know, at that point, the the, the case had been quote unquote solved. Yeah. So I was just there to say, look, I did my due diligence. But after spending a few days there in this village, I I was like, okay, I don't know what happened, but it's not what people are saying. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I spoke to Padma's parents and Lali's parents. They live in a joint family together. There are about uh, 18 of them. And they have their fields, they have their grazing animals. They are a tight-knit community of lower caste people who do everything together. They celebrate together, they mourn together. And in the village next to theirs uh, was, in uh, in the hamlet next to theirs, was a community of people who belong to a different caste, but essentially of the same level which is what matters in caste, you know, who is above, who is below. These people were technically equal, but members of their caste had been in control of the state for many, many years. So there was a sense in the state that members of that caste, the Yadav caste, were powerful. These people in the hamlet were anything but powerful. They were Mm. equally impoverished. They were struggling as well. But the blame of the deaths of the girls was put on a member of that community, a 19-year-old boy. So you have two girls dead, 
one boy accused and along with him his two brothers and along with them two other policemen mm -hmm. and all five had been hauled off to jail and that entire hamlet was was just ostracized mm -hmm. you know and and their reputation completely tarnished and i didn't get a chance to meet a whole lot of people that first time but i left came back to london thinking ah, i can't write this book yeah yeah because i just don't know what happened and you know at that point i i had a choice i could not write about this particular case and look at another case or i could try and figure out what happened in this particular case which would mean writing a completely different book so instead of writing a big book about sexual violence i would focus on one particular case mm -hmm. to try and understand what had happened how that picture had even reached twitter mm -hmm. how long were the girls in the tree that an outsider could come into the village and take a photograph and circulate it online how did five men end up in jail when it was really clear that there was a lot that had not been said mm. um and a lot that was being said that was perhaps not accurate mm. and so i decided well i know how to go there so why not just return and that's what i did so from 2015 i repeatedly went back to this village it's called katra sadatganj and i spoke to everybody i spoke mm -hmm. to more than 100 people in the course of uh, my reporting i gained access to more than 3000 official documents wow. that uh uh gave me insights into how the case was investigated mm -hmm. and uh, that's how i wrote the book and by the time i had finished I had written a book of two, true crime uh, about who killed two girls. But I had also written a coming-of-age story about mm. what it means to be a girl growing up in a country that's very, very modern in some ways and deeply resistant to modernity in mm. some other ways. Mm. There are two things I wanted to ask you about kind of stemming from that. Firstly, when you're faced with so much information, so you've got all of these first-hand accounts, these you know police reports, you've got all of the media coverage, you've got statistics. How do you even begin to organise and start that research? Because it must take a huge amount of, just a huge amount of organisation to kind of work out what to focus on, what to leave behind. And it feels like the kind of research that could go on forever as well. How do you know when you have enough information? How do you stop? I still remember, Stephanie, that the first thing I did was uh, to make a family tree. Oh. Because, you know, there are two girls, two families, but they live in a joint family. And like I mentioned, there are about 18 people in that family. So while I was still in London, before I had even made that first trip, I just mm. read everything that I could have. And it was an, a, an enormous case in India. You know, it was one of those cases where you could log onto Twitter or put on the television, go onto any of the news websites, and it was front page news. So mm -hmm. I had a huge amount of information at my fingertips. Mm 
with that before I even went to India. And I used that simply to make one, a family tree. So I knew I could locate myself, you know, I could just figure out who I needed to speak to. And the other thing I did was simply make lists of names, any name that I came across. So policeman, um, a, a, a member of the court, a member of family, an investigator, a neighbor uh, who may have been identified by in, in no other way but by, you know, words like two doors down, you know, something like that. And I just made these lists and that's what I took with me. And the second thing that I did was I got in touch with as many reporters as I could who had reported on the story as it happened. So people from TV and people from the from, from the papers who'd gone to Katra Sadat Ganj within a day or so sure. uh, of, of, of the children having been found. And I, I reached out to them for, for two things, which is what I always do. I mean, the first thing I say is, hey, can you can you give me contacts? You know, how do I get in touch with Soganlal Shakya, who is the father of the younger child, Lali, for example. You know, can you give me a number? Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I did. And the other mm -hmm. thing that I did was just to say, you know, what do you think? Like, what was, what is your sense of these people, this village, this story? Because journalists' intuition may not be something that they put into their reporting, but it nevertheless has a great deal of value. And I remember two journalists saying to me, yeah, something's up. I don't know what. And I couldn't say, um, but if you find out, let me know. And I remember thinking, no, no, please. This is a, you know, an open and shut case. Why are you saying this? <laughs> but they were right, you know, they were right. Mm -hmm. So it's baby steps. So you yeah. take those baby steps. And then what happens is you start drawing your own charts and you start making your own notes. And inevitably, you know, things get lost in translation. Um, a mistake that is made the first time ends up getting repeated. So you find that some of the information that you got from early reports is not accurate. You know, names are misspelled. Um, ages, oh my gosh, ages never seem to never seem to make it correctly on the page. And and it, you know, it is understandable because the situation is so fraught. I mean, and how do you ask a grieving father how old he is, uh, especially if? You know, he doesn't know how to read and write and, and barely has any way to even identify himself. You know, so so you do, I, I gathered information and then I found myself just starting from scratch once I actually went to the village often. Sure. And uh, I kept records, I, I keep records in two ways. One is I re record everything, so... Mm -hmm. You know, I have my tape recorder running six hours, eight hours. That is that is really just the most important device I have. But I also take lots and lots of notes while I'm writing. 
while I'm reporting. And so the notes will capture what a, a recording often can't. So a recording does capture background sound, right? But it's it's going to get lost because you're going to, when you listen back to the recording, you're listening to what a person is saying, not mm-hmm. to what kind of bird is tweeting in the background. Mm-hmm. So you want that sort of information. What sounds, what does the village sound like? What does the village look like? What color is the sky? What kind of birds are there? What does it smell like? You know, what are people wearing? What do the soles of bare feet look like? Those are the notes that you take uh, Mm. to supplement your recording. And along with that, there is information that I got from online archives uh, of, for example, what the village of Katra Sadatganj used to be like. So not too long ago, during the monsoons, the village would get flooded. So people would actually have to use boats to get from their homes to the fields. Mm. And that gives you a sense of, you know, where people have come up from. Mm. So if you know the last generation needed to get, needed to use boats because of how poorly everything was constructed. Uh, There was a complete absence of drainage. Now you know that circumstances have changed. They not only do they not do that, but people are using cycles, they use motorbikes. And vital to the story is they use modern devices like mobile phones Mm -hmm. and social messaging. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you, while focusing on the present you need to often delve quite deeply into the past to figure out what to figure out what led to to to, to current events taking place. And uh, early on, I worked with a, a fact checker. I have worked with lawyers. I worked with people who translated for me because although I speak fluent Hindi. Uh, Many of the people in in the village of Katra speak uh, Brajpacha, which is mm. a, a regional dialect, and it's it's I can understand it, but not well enough to translate it perfectly. Mm. So you know, I I took people along with me in the sense that I took assistance when I felt like I needed it, mm. and it's true that you know between. The 3,000 pages of documents and my own hundreds of hours of interviews, there were times where I felt like I was looking for a needle in a haystack or I was buried under that haystack myself. And uh, I just needed to remind myself that it was fine. It's Mm -hmm. okay to feel like this because if I just continue to work on this one day, it won't be like this. Mm. One day I would have figured it all out and I will have the story. And that's the secret. You know, as, as anybody who writes knows, the secret to getting something written is to write. That is also the secret of reporting something um, to a successful conclusion. You simply keep reporting without feeling that there has to be a deadline on this. And mm. by the way, you know, that that whole the, the, the fear that some people have that, oh, you know, well, it's easy for you to say, but left to my own devices, I'll report for the next 10 years. No, you won't. <laughs> yeah. Because one day you will get it. 
Mm. You know, and by the if if you haven't, if you feel the need to report, good. That's a good mm. instinct. Why, yeah. like, why is that bad? Yeah. If you feel the need to report, your story needs more. Keep reporting, and one day you'll say to yourself, "Oh my gosh, I get it. I'm done. Bravo." And that's mm. basically what you need to listen to to that voice. That's so helpful. So helpful, and. A, something that a lot of writers feedback and ask us about is you know how do you find the not just the confidence but that I don't know it, it's hard to keep going sometimes when you're in the thick of it isn't it um and you have to keep reminding yourself that you will get there eventually there were a couple of things I wanted to ask you about this sort of uh you know you were talking about the sounds and the smells and the setting I'll go back to that in a minute but I did uh, one of the things I really was found fascinating about this book is that balance between fact and fiction because you're dealing very much with the facts and it's narrative non-fiction but so many of the stories you were told as you said were you know these were told by key players but their stories often involved a lot of fiction their stories would change important informations you know initially withheld so it must have been really difficult to establish you know what is fact and what is fact fiction in your research could you could you tell us a bit about that, how you kind of, maybe not how you tease the truth from your interviewees, but how you, I guess, how you wanted to approach the balance between fact and fiction in your book? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the the girls were first cousins, Padman Lali, and they were also best friends. They were thick as thieves. They did everything together. And uh, everything meant everything. So the family didn't have toilets. Like many of the people in their village, they went to the fields to squat. And Mm. Padma and Lali always went to the fields together. Mm. And on the night that they would ultimately disappear, Padma said to her family, her large joint family, they were all hanging out together in the courtyard doing various chores, you know, cleaning, cooking, praying, feeding the animals. She said, oh, I have a stomachache. I'm going to go to the fields. And Lali, who was her best friend, her partner in crime, of course, piped up as she always does. And she said, I'll come along. And off they went. And nobody gave them a second glance. They did it every single night. And uh, Padma had a phone. She was 16 years old. She And Lali, unlike their mothers, could read and write, and they knew how to use a phone. So their mothers could accept calls, but they couldn't do anything further with a phone. But Padma and Lali, like teenagers everywhere, were hooked to their device, you know, messaging and calling and stuff. And so they had a phone. And at the back of their parents' minds was the thought that, well, we needn't worry because the girls are connected to us, right? Mm -hmm. We can just call them. And the girls go and nobody expected them to come back for 15, 20 minutes because that was the walking distance from the house to the fields. But that time passed and then the girls didn't show up. So people started looking at one another. The mother said, oh, where are these girls? And then finally, it because it was so dark, the fields weren't lit. They were naturally worried. And they were worried because, you know, the, this is a rural Uttar Pradesh you have cobras, you have various kinds of other animals, and you have bandits, bandits who just show up, uh, snatch a motorcycle, snatch a goat, sometimes snatch people. So the mothers go running into the fields. And from that moment on, everybody appears to see 
and hear and experience something different. Mm -hmm. And it was the most extraordinary thing. So, you know, someone says, I saw the girls talking to the man from the village next door. And someone else says, no, no, I saw thieves in the village. It was thieves. Someone else says, I saw people on a motorbike and they went off towards, you know, towards the, the other side of town and a search party is formed and they run around with their torches, staying absolutely silent because they don't want to wake up the village. You know, two girls going missing in a village rather than causing fear, unfortunately, it would raise questions about why the girls had been out to begin with. Mm. So wrapped up in in their, their, their concern for the girls, their desperation to find them, was also the idea of, oh my gosh, we have to sort this out before the matter gets out of hand. Mm. And there are dozens of people running around and running around in the fields. And by the time I show up, there are in fact dozens of different threads of the story mm. to untangle. And, you know, a lot of people continue to change their story over the years for various reasons. And I'm quite sure that if I went to the village tomorrow, I would find somebody who says, okay, you know, I know I said this to you, but it's actually this. You know, I mean, yeah. that could yeah. continue forever. Um, and the reason that could continue forever you know it, it's just in a village it, it's it's just not you you're not just answerable to yourself you're not even just answerable to your family you are answerable to the community and people have to be very careful about not just what they how they behave but also about what they say about the behavior of other people because it can have deadly consequences for them and for those people. So mm. sort of <laughs> figuring out who was telling the truth and who was <laughs> who was not uh, was really became, you know, the, the, the most important thing. And what I figured out, and this is true, I think, of a lot of uh, this sort of reporting is, is really is to be persistent. Mm. Uh, I kept returning back to the village. And the other thing that works is to report around people. You know, if somebody is going to persist in telling what is clearly a falsehood, you mm. can keep asking them the same question over and over and you know and it's only going to bring you grief and it's certainly not going to endure uh, endear you to them uh, or you can you can say okay you know what uh, i'm just i'm just going to talk to somebody else and what worked effectively for me was in circumstances where i was not getting the truth i would go to people around that individual. So, you know, fathers, mothers, brothers, uncles, cousins. And that is how I was able to build a narrative by being persistent, by speaking to a large number of people, by cross-checking information uh, as, as much as I possibly could. And, you know, it's really important not to take people at their word 
right away mm-hmm. to to allow people to win your trust you know and 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 also to understand by the way that you know as strangers showing up in a village uh they have no reason to trust me mm-hmm. and frankly they're doing me a favor by even just speaking to me i'm i show up one year later what is it in, what are they getting out of talking to me mm-hmm. why should they bother so you know it, it's it's understandable that there isn't trust and there might not be those the, the truth you need to also win it so it works both ways you know uh, a reporter must win trust or uh win respect trust may not happen uh but certainly win the respect of the people that they're interviewing and they need to be persistent how did the how did members of the community react to you you know coming back again and again and speaking and to people and kind of wanting to write uh, a book about this event were were people sort of generally quite positive about it did you get a very mixed response the members of padmanali's family were very kind very gracious mm-hmm. they spoke to me immediately that first time i went to visit them uh they were they were just so generous with mm-hmm. their time you know as time passed and uh, certain elements of their story required me to take a closer look uh it's it's very likely that their feelings towards me changed mm-hmm. and that is also something that happens you know but mm-hmm. it's not my job as a reporter to to tell the story that you want me to tell and frankly i'm not even telling the story that i want to tell i'm just <laughs> yeah. telling the story that is mm. you know and and although i they were not there there were moments when they were certainly displeased they they were remained incredibly kind and it couldn't have been easy mm. uh it, it must surely have been embarrassing uh mm. at times to be confronted with information that i found out mm. and uh you know I when I did see them last at 2018 I I think I believe we left on 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 good terms. Mm. I they have suffered an enormous amount. You know, mm. no matter what no matter what a story reveals uh about a family, about a community, about a country uh and I hope that the good girls does all of that. We must never forget that what actually happened is this. Two mm. children died. two kids they two kids have no business dying you know i mean mm-hmm. that is that is the worst thing that can happen and we also mustn't get so caught up in 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 talking about governance and politics and this and that and forgetting what has been taken from a family and for and, and, and the fact that the, the kids uh, how this was not meant to be this should not have been mm-hmm. and that must remain always paramount in 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 our thoughts and paramount in in how anybody who approaches stories at this particular story should should keep that in mind you know did you meet any resistance against writing and the publication of this book from kind of from the police from politicians from the media at all i just i just wonder because the book goes into you know a lot of detail about police investigations which were you know 
botched a lot of the time and various media reactions and the way that politicians did or didn't involve themselves in the case. Um, what has the reaction been? One of the things that uh, really shook me to the core was the manner in which the children's bodies were examined. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, as as readers will find out that the person who conducted the postmortem was in no way qualified mm. to even diagnose a cold, and the fact that he was doing that to the to these bodies, and you know that a part which is difficult enough to overcome, uh, you know, if you don't conduct a postmortem in the way that is meant to be done, then you are denying the police the, the backbone of a criminal investigation case. Mm-hmm. I mean, the police has nothing to go on. Mm-hmm. And you would think that all of these things, you know, the, the way that postmortems are conducted, the fact that the police, uh, perhaps even if they had been given an accurate postmortem result, wouldn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. The fact that politicians show up when terrible things happen, they murmur a few words, they press uh, bundles of money into the hands of the victim's parents, and then they disappear in their you know, fancy helicopters. And you would think that this, is something, this would be something for them to be embarrassed about, that they would hide it. And they would say, oh, you're writing a book. Well, I'd rather not speak to you, you know. But no. Uh, and I think the reason is because this is how it is. Mm-hmm. And people accept, in many places in India, people accept that their lives are not going to change. Mm-hmm. And they are simply not in a position to hold politicians accountable. Mm-hmm. And politicians also know this. So what you have is a sort of a piecemeal approach to development and I'm afraid to say even to justice, you yeah. know. So where you have cases that attract a lot of attention, for example, the December 2012 Delhi bus rape, the, the, the criminals were caught. They were immediately uh, put away. They were, the trial was speedy and the outcome was what the public wanted. So that case was the best example of how, Uh, That case was an example of how justice should work, but how it works only when the public condemnation is loud enough. Mm. But all other cases, they just come and go. And and so there's a sense of, you know, what am I going to do? Even if I do a good job as, as, as a doctor or as an investigator, everybody else will fail me. So really, should I bother? Because, you know, Putting a case together is not just a matter of one person doing their job correctly. For example, if the crime scene isn't protected, if you're just going to let hundreds of people come over to the mango tree and gaze up at the girls, I mean, there's your case. It's gone. What are you going to recover from that crime scene? Mm. So people were not were not embarrassed. I think they just thought it was regular. And yeah. I think they would have been surprised that, I thought it was far from that. And I don't think that, I don't think it's it's far from that I, because I live in London. I mean, I lived most of my life in, in Delhi and Bombay. But, you know, there are two systems of justice. 
And the justice that many people in India get is not the same justice that a, an Indian like me would have an experience of. And that is the worst possible indictment, I think, mm-hmm. you know. Just to wrap up our discussion of this book, what do you hope, and this is a bit of a blanket question, but what do you hope readers will take away from this book? What would you like them to take away once they've read it? I think, you know, I, I, I just... I want them to remember the girls. Yeah. I I know that terrible things happen all over the world and, and India is particularly known for violence against girls and women. And you know, that that's I'm not offering you some new information mm-hmm. or new statistic that you haven't already heard. Uh, but I hope that in how I have told the story, you come to understand what it means to be young and full of hopes and full of dreams Mm. in a village far away from where you may be listening to this and to think about the challenges that those people are facing. Mm. And I hope that in some way that influences your sense of responsibility, your sense of understanding of how an unequal place um, the world is. And and I hope it just makes you also appreciate what you have Mm -hmm. and think about if you are a writer or reporter, think about what your responsibility is. Who should you write about? Who should you focus on? If you are given the choice, if you have the power to talk about somebody should you talk about the rich and the powerful or should you talk about girls like Padma and Lali? And I have to say, I mentioned it before, I've thought about it. I finished reading Good Girls about a fortnight ago and I've thought about it often since. And I went for a walk last week with my partner and I ended up talking to him at length about it and kind of reciting some of the the you know the key moments that really stuck in my mind and he wants to read it too. So it's it, it makes such a huge impact. I think it really does. It's a fantastic book. Um, thank you do you do you mind me asking what are you are you working on anything now are you managing to to write and stay creative during lockdown as I know you're in London and stuck at home like me yeah you know Stephanie for me uh it's it's just important for my mental health yeah to keep myself occupied Absolutely. Uh, as much as possible so mm-hmm. I I am I've started running again I run yeah. regularly I'm trying to read um, books on paper because, you know, I, I just sort of want to wean myself away from, from the screen. And yeah. I have to be extra careful now about, you know, like where my attention is going um, and what I'm focusing on. And I'm just working on polishing little bits of reportage that um, have been sitting with editors. Um, I'm working on new pitches. I'm just trying to keep working. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's just how you, you're, we're, we're all going to get through this. You know, I mean, if those of us who can work, of course, who are fortunate enough to do so, and uh, I think that's how we can find some sort of solace and stability in this 
in this extraordinary time. We keep talking about being kind to yeah. other people. And, uh, you know, I would just say also be kind to yourself. It's a lot. We're going through a lot. And in the midst of this, if you're sitting out there thinking, well, I need to finish this book or else. No, you don't. Look after yourself and the book will happen. Do it in little, little bits if you must. Uh, you know, 100 words, 50 words, and some days perhaps no words. And that's also okay. The work will get done. Don't worry. Sonia, it's been so lovely to speak to you. I could, I could honestly listen to you talk all day. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. This was really good. Thank you for listening and thank you to Sonia for her time. If you have questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can find us as always on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre. Check out our Facebook page. Join our Discord free online community chat area. You'll find links down to that in the show notes. And of course, if you head to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, you can find out about everything we're doing and sign up to our lovely weekly newsletter. And if you're interested in any of those events we mentioned at the top of the podcast, then do just take a look down in the show notes. We've got links to all of those down there for you to find nice and easily. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.